0: Well, in case you hadn't heard, the World Cup final is today. Uh, Germany and Argentina—kind um, of a big to-do. A lot of hopes. Been a great tournament. Yeah, you can see that, right? That's from earlier this week. I'll explain that in just a minute. Um, a lot of hopes riding on this tournament. It's been a great tournament. Those of you who had the opportunity to to watch that, uh, maybe together or on your own or on your computer or on a big screen TV it's been a lot of fun very eventful twists and turns you know some say with the you know may, maybe as well as the US team did as far as they went this go around maybe maybe this is the, the year that soccer begins to take more of a a toehold in american culture maybe we'll we'll see we'll see um, certainly every every nation is hoping that their team is going to win lots of hopes pinned on on how well uh, they're going to do, wanting them to see uh, their, their team bringing back that, that trophy. It's, it's not just hopes for victory, though. There's, it, it's more that comes with the World Cup. Um, there, I was reading articles about this this past week, how there ha- it's not just that, hope that their team will win, but hope that somehow this event will be what brings their nation together. Uh, hope that it will unify their people, that it 'll heal the divisions back in their home countries. I mean, there were specific articles that, that spoke of Nigeria and and Belgium and certain Latin American countries, colombia in in particular uh, as well and i, I don 't doubt that you know those were just a few that I read, and there must be so so many more now the reality that 's the hope high hopes reality has fallen sh- just a little short. Uh, The story told the world over is of the defeated team being ravished then by a hostile press or their fans for, again, disappointing them. Or worse, as you can see there in that image, those are pictures taken just this past week from Brazil after Brazil suffered, this is the the host country, uh, Brazil suffered this absolutely historic and humiliating defeat at uh, the hands or the feet of, of Germany. Um, reports came back of uh, uh, violence, of all kinds of, of looting in the streets, of shops, of fires being set to uh, buses, public transportation. Some tried to burn, right down the stadium. There were fights breaking out in the stands between Brazilian fans and then attacks on tourists out in the street. In fact, they were told that the German fans, I don't know how many of you know about this, but the German fans were actually told once the, that match was over, do not leave the stadium till we secure the premises because they were fearful for what could happen. Um, so that's the reality. You have these high, high hopes. This is going to unify us. This is the answer. And then you have reality crashing in on that. Now my point in bringing up this dichotomy between the hopes and the reality is not to then say that unity is not worth hoping for and striving for. That's not my point. It is. But it would seem we need something better. We need something else. Something that's going to take us further and go deeper. And the Apostle Paul certainly shows us the way here in our text this morning. If you have a Bible with you, I want to urge you to turn with me to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4 is where we are. Uh, Philippians 4, if you're trying to find that, that is New Testament. This is one of Paul's letters. It's after the Gospels, after the book of Acts. So the historical books you have first there in the beginning of the New Testament. Then you have a series of letters that begins with Paul's letters. Romans and the Corinthian letters and Galatians and Ephesians and then Philippians. And we are in Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Just a very short passage that then sets the tone for uh, the next chunk here that's coming that, Lord willing, we'll jump into next week. But I just want to look at verses 1 through 3 uh, here together for the next few minutes. Chapter 4, Philippians, verses 1 through through three. Hear now God's word. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntike to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Let's pray together for a moment. Lord, we need this. We need this instruction. We need this more than we know. Uh, if we are honest, if well, if we'll but take a closer look uh, all around us and not just in news and not just in at uh, sports arenas and um, violence breaking out there, or even in our own land, or even our own community, or even in our own homes, uh, words that are spoken and attitudes that are, are felt and nourished, nurtured, and um, all the relational carnage that comes about because of that, and even in our own midst, even in relationships here in this room, we suffer from this, and we need your help. We, at, on the one hand, have hearts that are just, just torn over when when such carnage is going on uh, between us and someone else, and we we have this sense it ought not to be this way, but often we feel so stuck and and not sure how to proceed, and we we thank you that you know that and you speak to that, you mean more for us, and so you uh, give more for us. Give us ears then to hear uh, your word to us this morning. Amen. Uh, some of you may know, uh, I was uh, out of town a couple weeks ago. Emma and I went to the Cherokee Reservation in the Smoky Mountains of North Carolina Uh, We not hardly the first time that I've been there. I learned something new, as I do every time that I go. I learned something yet again, something new, Uh, this time about the sport of stickball. Stickball is is an ancient uh, sport, goes back centuries in terms of its its origins, Uh, something uh, as a sport played by uh, Native Americans, in particular the Cherokee. Uh, It's something kind of like an early version of lacrosse, except it's got more than one stick, Very few rules, Uh, there are no substitutions, there are no timeouts, there are documented cases of where the game goes on for days, because of that, the injuries can be pretty severe, it's still played today, uh, a little bit more organized, I saw some of the the youngsters that we ran into wearing shirts that had tournaments, you know, this tribe playing that tribe and that that kind of thing. but it, and it's, historically, it was more than a game. It was more than just, just a game, just, just kind of a pickup match. In fact, I don't, I'm not going to pretend to be able to pronounce the word, but the, the Cherokee word that we translate as stickball literally means little brother of war. And there was a reason for that, because historically the game was intended to have two purposes, and one was to toughen up young warriors. The other was to settle disputes between tribes. Warring, well, almost warring tribes would agree, the chiefs would agree to a game of stickball to determine the dispute. The idea was this, that whatever deaths or injuries, however severe they may be on the field, would just be by a few. And far better that than many deaths and injuries if full out. Uh, war breaks out between the tribes. It's a very interesting idea, a very interesting approach. Uh, There was something else, though, and I knew something about all of that before we went. This uh, this part I hadn't heard before until this most recent trip, and that had to do with the ball. I'm not talking about the physicality of the ball, though. if you're curious, it's kind of like a baseball in terms of how it's made, but a rock at the middle and all this stuff wrapped around it. That's not my point. The point is how they viewed the ball. The ball was actually viewed to be an embodiment of the dispute. It was as though they you know, sort of laid the dispute into the ball so that once the game's outcome had been determined, someone would take that ball to a secret place, bury it, never to be seen again. You can see the symbolism with that. And again, it's a very interesting picture. But no one would pretend then or now, that that really went to the heart of the issues. You can't bury a ball and deal with your heart. In fact, uh, one chief years ago was quoted talking about how the Cherokee could not do without war. They wouldn't know what to do if they didn't have the... In fact, it was referred to, war in general was referred to, this is a quote, as a beloved occupation. Now that's not just that race. That's the world over. That's all of us. That's a human thing. Our beloved occupation. Well, is there anything that can go to the root of this? Is there anything that can address the heart? Well, Paul shows us here, indeed there is. And it's the gospel. The gospel goes to the heart of our conflicts. And because it goes to the heart, our heart. Philippians 4, verse 1. Listen, listen To how Paul speaks here. Just as he begins to address this issue uh, with his his readers, listen to the affection, listen to the relational component here, and and then I'm going to come back to that after we read it. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. My... Beloved, now you think maybe you've read Paul a time or two. Maybe you remember something of other places in Philippians. He's spoken in such ways. You're like, what's the big deal? The big deal is this. This is a former Pharisee writing to a predominantly Gentile audience earlier in Paul's life. He wouldn't have cared a hoot about these people. He would have ignored their needs, scorned, spurned them, not, I wouldn't even go so far as to say, could care less. He would have cared and cared with animosity. And yet, now at this point, they are so dear. His heart is breaking when he considers any, any pain, any struggle. He longs for these people. He loves and deeply so. He can't express it enough. In that one verse, you see it just overflowing. It's over. Well, how do you explain that? How do you explain the change that has come over this man whereas once before and now he's writing and feeling this way? It's the gospel. The gospel has made its way into his heart and it's changing him, has changed and is changing him. It's a living, vibrant relationship with the risen, ruling, and returning Jesus. That's how you explain this. That's what has happened in Paul's life. And Paul's point, implicitly, explicitly, however you want to say it, is true unity, whatever whatever your um, predisposition or assumption about the topic is this morning, however harsh or ugly your experience has been with other people and relationships, the fact is true unity is possible. But it is possible only in the gospel. Other things can help us. Other things might get us halfway or partially there, or, but they ultimately prove to be thin. Too fragile. Too frail. They can't handle the pressure, the heat. The gospel. The gospel makes true unity possible. And, as a corollary to that, in times of conflict... It is the gospel that must be applied. It is the gospel that makes true unity possible, and in times of conflict, it is the gospel that must be applied. And that is exactly what Paul is saying here, showing us here in this case study in peacemaking. as taking place here in, in this church in Philippi, as we see just here, three points, three points. The need to stand firm. Secondly, to agree in the Lord. And thirdly, to help each other. That's what we see here. Paul is helping us to to grapple with as to what it looks like to live out the gospel in the context of a conflict. Standing firm, agreeing in the Lord, helping each other. Let's look at these in turn. First, the need to stand firm. This, This was a word spoken to the whole church. Everybody there and here, everybody, stand firm. Verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm. Thus in the Lord, my beloved. Well, what would that look like? Paul is describing here a steadfast resistance, a refusal to retreat, or absolute refusal to retreat, a sort of a, a shoulder-to-shoulder, standing with one another, not against, with. With or or he's used such language already in chapter one, chapter one verses 27 and 28. He's sort of set us up for this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. And this is actually a military image, a military metaphor that Paul is, is adopting here for his audience, no doubt, because you may remember this is a Roman colony predominantly made up of retired army officers. So he speaks of standing firm, this image of doing battle, standing shoulder to shoulder against an enemy coming across. The, they're going to get that. And maybe some of you do too. All right, that's what this looks like. How is it to be done? Well, it's a standing firm in the Lord. That is to say, a standing firm with His person in mind. Who is He? Well, He is the King who has commanded this. But not just that. He is a shepherd king who enables this. Stand firm. How? In the Lord. As He has shown and as He will help. Stand firm in the Lord, not just with His person in mind, but with His gospel having been taken to heart. This gospel, the good news of His love for us is, has to be throughout this. It has to be the the, 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 the theme of the story of our lives, the thread interwoven, holding it together, the, the refrain of our, of our song, the air that we breathe. With him in mind and the gospel, taking the gospel to heart, we stand firm in the Lord and in nothing else, and in no one else, and no other agenda. It has to be in the Lord, majoring in the gospel, majoring in him, in Christ, in all that he is and has done. Letting him dominate our sight, so that all else is eventually eclipsed. Letting majors be majors and minors finding their place. Some of you, no doubt, and have picked up on the fact I'm a C.S. Lewis fan. I'm not going to quote anything at this point by Lewis. I'm going to tell you a little story, though. Mere Christianity, where that came from. Mere Christianity to the title is, in essence, Basic Christianity. Christianity as known and embraced and treasured by the ancients and passed down to us. Mere basic Christianity. Lewis grew up in Belfast, Ireland. Not exactly a hotbed for ecclesiastical church unity. Catholic and Protestant warring against each other. He was wounded severely in the trenches of World War I. The lectures from which the book, "Mere Christianity came," was lectures done, word lectures done on BBC in the midst of World War II, and the Germans bombing the Blitzkrieg, uh, um, all of that stuff at that time. Lewis was an Anglican. Some of you may know that. Um, his dear, dear friend some of you may have heard of this guy, J. R. R. Tolkien was a Roman Catholic. My point in bringing this up about Lewis and mere Christianity is that Lewis recognized that in the common faith that we share, there is much to learn from each other and therein much that we can actually give to each other. We have this common faith is the point. need to recognize that. But at the same time, and this kind of takes you to that John Daly uh, quote that I read earlier as we began the service, they're in a common faith, a common enemy. We have a common enemy. It's why Paul tells us to stand firm. You don't have to stand firm shoulder to shoulder on a battlefield when there's no one. I mean, we're not talking about a picnic. It's combat. And Paul is saying, look, we, back in chapter 3, he, he warned us about the temptations towards legalism adding to the gospel, or a license taking away from the gospel, and the reality being we all, every one of us, have a bent one way or the other towards one side of that swamp or the other. And there is an enemy, Satan himself, who stands at the ready, who perches at the ready, looking to exploit that, to divide. And conquer and Paul is imploring us here my friends stand firm together shoulder to shoulder in this fight in the Lord you have a common enemy all of you all of you and that's the first thing it sets the tone for everything that's coming the gospel is what brings about the unity we long for. Well, the gospel is what has to be applied in the context of a conflict, which brings me to the second point. To agree, to stand firm, but also to agree, to agree in the Lord. Verse 2, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now here we've, we're, moving, we're moving now from the larger group to just two. To just two that are specifically named. And we actually don't know what the issues are. Paul doesn't tell us. There have been all kinds of suppositions and guesswork being done over the years as to what it is, but Paul is wonderfully nebulous on this point. He's very clear on the things we have to know, he's nebulous on the things we don't. I mean, was it personal? Was it ethical? Was it theological? We don't know, and it doesn't matter. What matters is the fact that they weren't getting along. Uh, And Paul says, he's pleading with them to agree. Now, when he says this, he's not calling for something soft. Oh, you know, what happened? The facts, the events of what happened? Just pretend like it didn't. Y'all just love one another. (laughs) Nor is he pretending that truth doesn't matter. You think the Apostle Paul is going to encourage that idea? No, that's not what he's saying. He's not, he's not calling for something soft here. He's calling for something solid uh, to agree in the Lord. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, He's similar language. Uh, he's, again, setting the tone for what's coming. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love being in full accord and of one mind, literally it means to think the same thoughts, or that is to come back, yodi, Syntyche, your shared essential commitments. Have you forgotten your shared essential priorities and goals in Christ? Have you forgotten? In the Lord, to agree in the Lord. That's what, how is this to be done? It's what's to be done. How is this to be done? Well, Paul's against in the Lord. Well, what does that look like? How is that to be? Well, consider, hear the appeal. Hear the appeal and consider how Paul does this. He doesn't pull rank. He doesn't say, I command you. He says, I appeal. I appeal to you. Now, the apostle is, in essence, the spokesperson the spokesman for the Lord Himself. So it's in essence Jesus speaking through Paul to these women in the context of a conflict in this church, Yodia, Syntache, names. Not just, you know, whoever, not just agree in the Lord, you you people, but you and you. I know you. I know what's happened. I know the needs. I know your concerns. I know how you've been hurt. Agree. Agree in the Lord. Hear the appeal. Hear what He knows of the situation. The people. And remember the Gospel. Hear the appeal and remember the Gospel. Yodia, who are you? Who is she? Syntyche. Whose are you? Whose is she? Your shared status. Your shared hope in the gospel. Ilya, Syntyche, agree in the Lord. Come back to this common place. Ladies, my dear sisters, don't stand Waiting for the other to take the for you each, each of you, it's on you both to take the initiative. Move as I've moved towards you. Move towards each other. Don't wait. Move. Move towards each other. There's too much at stake. There's too much to lose. It reminds me of something, and I know some of you have heard me use this analogy before. I mentioned Tolkien. I am going to quote from Tolkien here at this point. Uh, a scene from The Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, the, uh, the ring needs to be taken to Mordor and destroyed uh, in the fire. The survival of Middle-earth and all the peoples of Middle-earth ultimately depends on this. It's going to take the strength of men and wizard and the hardiness of elf and dwarf to pull this off. And Hobbits, but that's another story. The problem is Legolas the elf and Gimli the dwarf are—they have grievances one to the other, and so right there at the beginning of the whole thing, I don't think it's so much in the film, but in the books, this argument breaks out between the two as to what caused the problems, the grievances, the breakdown of the relationship and the friendship of the, the, of the two peoples, and so they're sniping at one another right there, and Gandalf speaks up, moves towards them, and says this, I have heard both, and I will not give judgments now, but I beg you to, Legolas and Gimli, at least to be friends and to help me. I need you both. And they needed each other. And as the story unfolds, it's what they begin to learn. They begin to respect one another, learn from one another, rely on one another, beginning to see that There's a dynamic where there's a larger world in need of a smaller few to set aside their relatively smaller disagreements in view of the needs of the whole and the greater mission. To have things in perspective and to move and to act accordingly. So I said there's a common enemy. If I can be redundant, there's a common unity a common goal, a common purpose, which requires us in the thick of it at times to take a step back. Yodia, Sintiki, take a step back. Richard, take a step back. Rick, take a step back. Mary, take a step back. All of us, take a step back. Just leaving random names there, by the way. Um, How can I glorify God in this? What would it look like to trust Him in this? What would it look like to trust Him and His promises in this? What would it look like to obey Him and His commands in this? What does the gospel look like in terms of how it's to be lived out in this? How is He calling me to see you? How is He calling me to love you? How have I done poorly Have I seen poorly? Have I acted poorly? Have I spoken poorly to you? What do I need to own? You see, the gospel is what brings us together. The gospel is what makes unity possible. It is the gospel that has to be applied in the midst of the conflict as well. So we stand firm, standing in the Lord, and agree in the Lord as well. Third point. Helping each other. Uh, Here we get even more narrow. We've we've started with the larger group, the larger whole. We've gone down to two. Now we move to one. Verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now who is this? We don't know. Again, there's been all kinds of guesswork done over the centuries as to who this um, true companion, or your footnote might say, true yoke fellow. We just don't know. He did. He knew Paul. was, And everyone else did too. This is a person of such standing that Paul, all he had to do is say it in that way, and everybody, everybody knew. And this individual is being called not to sit back on the sideline and watch it happen and assess it and put it on his next blog, but rather to step forward and to get engaged and to love these people enough to help them. What does this look like? It begins with assuming nothing. It begins with assuming nothing. I want you to consider the fact that Yodia and Syntyche were two women of such high standing in this congregation. That they are named, and likely the impact of this dispute is having trickle down effects, bleeding out into the rest of the congregation. These are two women of great standing, ministry significant and likely vibrant. They've probably got a rich history in terms of how they have loved and served on people, maybe even side by side. Maybe they were like, you know, peanut butter and jelly in the, in the church of Philippi. But that doesn't matter. Stature doesn't matter. We all have blind spots. Don't fool yourself. You do. So do I. So did they. And so it begins with assuming nothing. And then the second thing is to come alongside, to listen, to listen. Tell me what's going on. Tell me what's happened. Tell me how you responded. Tell me why. Tell me what was, you know, what, tell me more. With a longing to see sanity, clarity restored. Because, of course, we do lose our minds when it comes to conflict with each other. We really do. So, so whoever this is, to come alongside and to see that restored, to encourage them in, in the reality of the Lord loves you. He, okay, you have blown it. You're beginning to see that. He forgives you, and He can help you. And he will help you make that confession. He will help you to forgive. To encourage them. And yet also warn them. Warn them as to what of the consequences and the stakes that are in play for them in the larger body. Which brings me to the second point, the, the sub-point of this. And that is not just what this looks like, but why it has to be done. And, and this is where we as Westerners, well we're sinners, but in particular as Westerners, really struggle here. Because... Whatever this was about, personal, ethical, theological, whatever, however much they may have wanted to believe this was just between them, it wasn't. And ultimately, my friends, it never is. Ultimately, a fight between, or a quarrel or a conflict, however you want to label it, between any two Christians is never, ever, just about them. It is never a private little matter. Now, maybe it's best resolved that way, but it oftentimes has to be dealt with by another person coming in. And case in point, this person that Paul is urging to do that very thing. It's about the whole body. The witness the witness of verse 3 is, is overwhelming. It, it comes out even more so in the Greek. I won't bore you with all of that, but let me read it to you again and you can kind of see the, the corporate body-ness to this and, and why Paul is urging this response. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, you Latin scholars may pick up on something there, Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. But Paul's point is that we have been made one. Made one, being called to live that out. It's not this theory. It's not just something we talk about on Sunday mornings. But it's true, we've been made one and we have to walk out of that, live out of that. We are to be living demonstrations, every one of us and all of us together, of the power and the reality of the gospel. And as part of what that looks like. I've mentioned to you already my trip to Cherokee. I want to read to you an excerpt from a book that I've got called Faithful Volunteers. It's actually about some of the, the history from a different perspective of the state of Tennessee. And it deals with some of the Native American tribes, and breaking them down, their histories, the Cherokee in particular. And there's this one section that talks about how the Cherokee, who referred to themselves as the real people, that, that was the, how the, what that word actually is translated as meaning, how they lived together historically. The virtue and integrity of the community was a major concern of the real people. They almost always thought first in terms of corporate life. Some of their most important myths and symbols stress this preeminence of the clan. Even the famous story of the origin of the bear taught the importance of harmony in the clan. According to myth, bears were once a part of dissident humans who lived in the woods apart from the tribe. In time, they grew hair all over their bodies, forgot the real people's language, and began to walk on all fours. They ceased to be human to be real people because they cease to care about the community. Now I don't know if that's really where bears came from, but you get the point. Community and that, the very concept of, of really what it is and what it demands is a, is a real challenge to us as Americans. The the idea of mutual accountability, of mutual responsibility, is a real challenge to us. If if you're feeling offended, you're hearing me. If this is cutting against the grain of your sensibility, you're hearing me. Because this this goes completely against our impulse, what the Scriptures are speaking of here. And if you're not feeling offended, then you're probably not hearing me. What, what would, Paul says here, our names are written, yours and mine, as followers of Christ in the book of life. Now, what would that mean? What would that look like if we really believed that? Your name and my name in the same book. How would we do conflict? How would we do disagreements with each other? Paul says we're, we're a family. Okay, assuming we know anything, and none of us really do, of a fully functioning family unit, but let's just assume it's working as it's supposed to. Let's just assume the relationships are, are you know, flowing and people get their mutual responsibilities towards one another and the privilege of being together. What would that look like? How do people like that do life together? Or a body. Paul says that we, you can pick that up here as well. We're a body. We're members. Well, you know, when a body is stricken with illness or disease, how does the rest of the body respond? What does that mean to us? Do we get that? Are we hearing that? that this is why and how because it so cuts against our grain and our sensibility it's why here at CPC and you've heard us talk about this a you know, little bit in the last few months we have a peacemaking team a group of individuals who are availing themselves because of the training and experience and heart that they have for relationship in the body to see that done rightly because it doesn't come natural but it's so vital The gospel, my friends, the gospel is what makes all of this possible, and it is that same gospel that has to be applied. Now, again, I want to come back to this point. I'm just wrapping this up. This is not natural. None of this is natural for for any, for us to stand firm, for us to agree, or to help. None of it comes naturally. This is applied repentance and confession and forgiveness. This is living out. Patience and mercy and grace. Uh, None of that comes naturally, but it is absolutely vital. Now, uh, example, this is the time of year where well-meaning parents take their highly hesitant children to local swimming pools for swimming lessons. Some of you are, yeah, giving me the look. Let me just speak candid here. Parents, give your kid a break on this point. Swimming is not natural. We were not born with gills. We were born with lungs. We do not have fins. We have fingers and feet. So it's a little wonder that little Johnny or little Susie is a little hesitant about going out into the deep water. It's why they're clinging to you and the side of the pool. Swimming is not natural. But little Johnny and little Susie, I have to say this to you, it's vital. If you want to ever go out into that water, if you ever want to swim with the big kids, you need to listen to what your instructor tells you, trust their experience, and practice. You see, it's not natural, but it's vital. Now, take that and ramp it up to the nth degree, because that's just something that's hard. Again, we're talking about something here that's impossible. Impossible in and of ourselves. So where does that leave us? Well, actually, it doesn't leave us anywhere. It drives us. It drives us to Jesus. It drives us to Jesus to cry out to Him and say, Oh, Lord, help us. We are so lost here. Give us your word to guide us. Give us your spirit to enable us. And here's the good news. He has and he does. The gospel makes unity possible. And by his grace, the gospel applied can guide us through conflict as well. He'll help us. All we have to do is cry out to him. Let's pray. Lord, we have a, certainly a, a deep desire and longing within our hearts for community. And it's not just because when we don't and when things are disjointed, it's not just because it's inconvenient and hard and tiresome, but it's because you made us for it. We're made in your image according to your likeness, an eternally relating triune God. So we we seek this, and we strive after this, and we see it all around us. Attempts without you. It may go a little ways, but ultimately are too thin and frail and can't last. But with you, there's the potential for something deeper and more satisfying. Community. Where we are brought together and held together. We pray that you'd help us to remember these things. And to remind each other of these things. And to hold forth this living hope that we have to a watching world that needs us every bit as much as we do. In your name we pray. Amen.